This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Sometimes a new technology comes along that you've barely heard of, but could change everything. Like how we own things. We're putting the fun in non-fungible tokens. All about NFTs on Device and Virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris. Today we are talking about, wait for it. Okay. Non-fungible tokens. Okay, so here's the thing where we're going to have nobody listening to us anymore. And now everyone has shut off this episode. They're like, a a mushroom (laughs) podcast? (laughs) Uh, they're, they're, I mean, they're fun guys, but I don't know if we can do the non-fungible Oh my gosh, you just tokens. did a dad pun. They're fun guys. Non-fungible tokens, otherwise known as NFTs. NFTs. So I'm not sure a lot of people know what an NFT is, but Adam, I have a special surprise for you. I've done some research and I'm not even sure I understand what <laughs> NFTs are. So what's your surprise? I created an NFT of this podcast episode. What? That's so exciting. <laughs> so an NFT is a digital record that indicates ownership. And in the last couple of weeks, since we were talking about doing NFTs, I went and created a record for Device and Virtue on the Amazon of NFTs called OpenSea. No way. That's and, fantastic. I'm super, I'm, I'm genuinely excited and surprised. And, and it is a gift, even if I have to purchase it. And I created a token, which will be linked to the audio of this episode that someone can buy to Whoa. own the original token of this episode. <laughs> wow. So now if you weren't going to listen, you should listen now because maybe... By the end, you'll be able to figure out how you could purchase this podcast episode as an NFT. I don't even know how to do that. So there's sort of a bidding system online for these things. We'll explain all this. Yes. But I think we should probably start the bidding at like 50 cents. (laughs) (laughs) We might get a dollar. (laughs) That's exciting. I'm excited. We need support for this podcast. (laughs) Please support us. Well, I'll show that to you in a minute. Why don't we work up appetite for people buying our NFT (laughs) by by explaining what it is? All right. Perfect. So, Chris, I think of NFTs as really hitting the zeitgeist in spring 2021 when Kings of Leon, which is a band you may or may not have heard of, they released their album as an NFT. What? Which... I guess is like releasing a podcast as an NFT, <laughs> but they're going to make a lot more money on their on their album. So it's like people could buy it. Right. They had an album called When You See Yourself and they auctioned off the NFT and they called it NFT Yourself. So it's essentially they tokenized a version of their album. Tokenized. We're going to have to explain tokenized. We're going to have to explain non-fungible. Okay. How about I try? Yeah, go for it. Token. A token is a digital record. That shows that you own something. That sounds so simple that I don't even understand. <laughs> it's a it's a record. It's like a representation. It's like a deed. Like I have a deed to a house. I don't have a deed to a house because I don't want to get into a mortgage ever. <laughs> but, it. but it's like having a deed to a house or a deed to a car, which is a piece of paper that shows you own something. Right. This is a digital version of it. It's a digital way to own something, a digital record that you own something. That's a token. So it's sorta. not the thing itself. No. It's not the podcast itself. It's not the album itself, but it's a... Certificate of ownership. Certificate of ownership. Okay. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> but let's just but leave it, it at and that. that. So that's the token part. That's the token. All right. Now, non-fungible. So fungible, that's a fun <laughs> mushroom word, <laughs> means replaceable. Replaceable? So non-fungible means not replaceable. There's only one of a kind. You can only have one of these records. All right. Non-fungible so, token is an irreplaceable record. So can you give me an example of something that is fungible in the real world? Yeah, lots of things are fungible. Not abstractly. If you go to Target 
and buy a pack of white t-shirts. You can buy another pack of white t-shirts and they're nearly identical because we make clothes <laughs> on a manufacturing line and they make sort of really identical clothing. Okay. So, right. So like, <laughs> so say I got a pack of white t-shirts and I brought it home and actually one of them was torn in half for some reason. Okay. I could take it back to the store and like, I would like to exchange this for another pack of white t-shirts. And I don't care because as long as I get the white t-shirts and they so just hand me another, replaceable. I, I hand me another identical pack and then, yeah. yes, it's replaceable. It's replaceable. However, okay. if I went to an art auction, which I assume we'll be talking a lot about art, because yeah. NFTs, there's a lot of art stuff going on right now. But if I went to an art auction and they had a Monet for sale and Monet painted this one painting and I bought it, I couldn't just be like, oh, just like, I'll just trade it for another one. Like, this is the one special <laughs> Monet that Monet painted at this one place in time. So that's non-fungible. It's sort of one of a kind. Wow. All right. So it's one of a kind. It's unique. It's irreplaceable. And it has its own value that you can't just exchange for another one that has the same value. Whereas the t-shirts, they're all, they all have the same value, basically. Right. And a more, more abstract example, but really common is, is just money. Like, okay. Money, like, money is fungible. Like a dollar is a dollar. A dollar is a dollar is a dollar, is a dollar right? Like, and if I, if I literally have a dollar bill, I could trade it for the dollar bill that you have. And unless it's counterfeit for some reason, it's the, they're the same thing. So this whole NFT thing. So you said the Kings of Leon sold this album. Right. Using it NFT. Did they do it so only one person could buy this thing or did they no, do it they, so multiple people? They had it? multiple non-fungible tokens. They had multiple NFTs for this album and they sold a range of them. But it sounds like they didn't sell all of them because apparently they burned the rest, which I don't get. Oh, okay. oh now we're getting really technical. Yeah, yeah there's a... It's a burn thing. So here's the thing about these NFTs, right? These are ways to own digital things. Or they're digital ways to own physical things. What just got confusing? Yeah. But they but they sort of make sense that these are popping up now, right? Well, and another interesting example was the free Hawaii photo. Oh yeah. So this woman took this photo. I I had never seen the photo, but apparently it was famous. It's this paved street through Hawaii, and on both sides are beautiful green, lush trees and in yeah. this valley. And yeah, yeah. Anyways. I remember I, I looked at it when you sent it to me, because remember I was in Hawaii earlier this year, and I was like, where is that? But yeah, mm, I, it was a cool photo. Yeah. So she posted it, and it got shared and reshared and reshared, sometimes with attribution, sometimes without. And eventually, I think even Instagram themselves posted it without attribution. Okay. And she finally decided, I can't control this, and I'm not getting any money for this photo that I own. Oh, I see. And so she turned it into an NFT and she sold the NFT. So she created a digital record. That's called minting an right. NFT, like she, currency, but yeah. not minting an NFT. And she and she sold one NFT of this photo. So now it's freely available, but there's one person who owns it, I guess. So it's sort of like an art dealer or an art collector yeah. would own a thing. Right. It's It's the Monet... But, you know, even Monet's pictures have copies and Well, yeah, you can see them online. Now. You can Google right. image search and see a Monet. But then there's an original hanging somewhere in an art museum. Right. And she is saying this is the original. So someone bought. But it's the, always been digital. The OG, the original. But then other people can see it. So mm -hmm. what's the point of owning an original? That is a great question. There's all these contradictions around NFTs. Like you could own a thing, but how can you own something that can be easily copied and reproduced? Yeah. What's the value of the original if every copy is exactly the same digitally? There's been so many other crazy things sold for yeah. so much money. Right. Like you sent me this one that sold for like $11.7 million. I saw another one. There was this artist called Beeple who has these uh, a digital art collection. He put it out for sale using this NFT kind of yeah. thing. $70 million. Yeah. People are making, becoming millionaires. There are articles about teenagers becoming millionaires overnight by putting a digital record of ownership, uh, minting one of these NFTs. Right. And then it sells on a marketplace and people will pay a ton of money for it. Yeah. What the heck is happening? I mean, it could be a GIF. It could be a meme. It could be the he thing. He means GIF. It could be, I'm going to just ignore that. <laughs> it could be the thing that you, you send to your friends, but someone created that meme. Someone created that GIF. And now it could be sold at auction because it's a famous one. Hello Kitty is going to become an NFT. 
SpongeBob, SquarePants is going to become an NFT. <laughs> Spock from Star Trek. I saw Budweiser had an NFT thing online. Oh, really? They were, they were selling NFTs of all these historic cans. Like there's been different styles of the cans right, since right. like, you know, the early 1900s. Oh, yeah. They were like, you know, $4,000, $5,000 who were bidding on them. But again, they're not actually even really getting the can. They're getting a record of ownership that they own the can. But people are valuing these. So the question is, mm-hmm. why? The question is, are these a fad? The question is, do these change anything? Does this technology, which we're just hearing about, yeah. affect our lives? You and I usually talk about technologies that we all are used to. But this right. one's a little bit more esoteric, a little bit weirder. But it's coming so fast. It's riding on the heels of cryptocurrency, which is also kind of up and down all over the place. It's using the same technologies, blockchain, Ethereum, and Bitcoin. It's following a similar kind of trendiness that crypto has had. So Exactly. So I guess the question is, are these a fad or are they not? Chris, do you remember Beanie Babies back from the like 90s? <laughs> you know, I owned one. You what? <laughs> oh man, so many confessions tonight. <laughs> I had the little cow. It was like a. I it was I like a, never owned a Beanie Baby a that cow. I can recall. It was black and white. Had cute little horns. Beanie Babies were this fad, and if you got the right ones, you could turn around and sell them for incredibly crazy amounts of money. <laughs> oh yeah, and I think it's the eighties. It was the nineties. It was the nineties. Yeah. And even if you still have them today, there may be some out there that you could sell and still make some decent money on them. Find that expensive on one them. in your attic. Right. But it was this fad, right? And there were these exorbitant prices for them. Yeah, Do and you collectors wanted them. think NFTs are digital beanie babies? Are they just the Tickle Me Elmo of 2021? Oh, we have two toy analogies. Yeah. I know what you think I'm going to say. You think I'm going to be like, no, this is forever. (laughs) This is the new thing. You always surprise me. I've stopped trying to pigeonhole you. (laughs) I think NFTs, as they're appearing now, are totally a bubble fad. They're a bubble fad. Yes. Meaning right now we are seeing a lot of things like these GIFs, copies of art. (laughs) People are buying them and then turning around and reselling them at very high amounts of money. Right. We're going to sell our podcast NFT. And then for someone $1 else, million dollars. and then we're going to sell it for 50 cents and then someone else is going to turn around and sell it for an incredible amount of money. We'll go to a good cost. I think what's happening right now is a bubble. But to make the other argument, remember that artist, there's a artist, his name is Beeple. Beeple. Well, I don't remember his real name. It's like uh, Steeple, but with a B. Yeah. Beeple. That's what he goes. He's actually a really accomplished artist. You can look up his art online, but he sold his digital art collection for $70 million. And the AP News reported that he said a lot of people are comparing NFTs to the beginning of the internet. And he was saying this is the most important thing that's happened. And the reason is, as an artist, this is a way to actually prove ownership. To yeah. sell. In the past, if you were in Monet and you painted that masterpiece, that can become valuable. And right. in the 1880s, by right. the way, when Monet was alive in painting, speculators in Chicago really loved his work. And it's why Chicago has the largest collection of Monet outside of Paris. Because like the Palmer family, who has the Palmer Hilton well, Hotel. This just became a, a docent experience. <laughs> wow. Bought a lot of Monet. <laughs> He's incredibly valuable even now. But these were one of a kind things and they still yeah. are. This artist people was saying, we haven't had a way to do this. Before a right. JPEG, right. if I made something on an iPad or I made digital art, you could just go right click on it and click save as. I've never done that. And down, ever. <laughs> right, and, down <laughs> and download it. And you can download as many kinds as you want, right? Digital right. technology right. is infinite and repeatable. You can just take right. copy, even like copy and paste. We've copy had older paste. technologies back in the day. My mom, what was those purple photocopies? Remember like when the eighties, when we were kids, mm. you could go to stores and make like, it was like a purple ink. Someone old will remember this, but like it was like a photocopy machine, but even a regular photocopy machine, when you make copies of it, you could get a copy of it, but it looked bad, right? There was handouts in class. You could tell it was a copy. It was not as high quality as the original. So we went from one place where we couldn't make any copies Mm -hmm. to another place, or if you had to do it as meticulous, it was very slow, to another place where we had technology like Xerox machines, which can make copies, but degraded them Mm -hmm. and made them, they were analog copies, to digital technology, which can make infinite perfect copies of something right. and suddenly an artist has no way to make an original 
Right. I mean, it was the controversy around Napster, right? Napster made it possible to share all of these audio files, all of these songs. You could share them infinitely and reproduce them and replicate them everywhere. And suddenly the value of the musician's work yeah. was... Well, the, we're like, where is it going to come from? Right. They, they have to sell albums. And musicians are still struggling to make a living off of making music. Yes and no. I mean, I don't know if I totally agree with that because I think one of the stories of that is actually musicians are thriving, but they certainly are not making money the way they used to by selling originals of their work. The digital right. revolution right. changed a lot of things. So Beeple says NFTs are changing everything and they're the way of the future. Artists are jumping on this and saying, this is a way to prove ownership and retain some artistic credibility or, or right to my I work. can prove that this person owns it. I can sell this to a high bidder. Mm -hmm. And even if there are copies made, everyone knows it's not the original. But it doesn't prevent them from replicating, copying and pasting their work. Right. Sort of just as in the same way, if like I took a photo of the Monet at the Art Institute, I could have that photo, but I wouldn't have the original. The NFT sort of allows that to happen. Right. So, you know, I have this thing about toy tool environment, right? So yes. new technologies start as a toy. Then they move to a tool, and eventually they become an environment. When they're a toy in society, we play with them. When they're a tool in society, we figure out a useful way to use them. And when they become an environment, they become invisible and normal. And we stop talking about them as a technology because they're so obvious. This seems very toy stage. These people oh, yeah. like jumping onto these. And I mentioned this already. The OpenSea website is the Amazon of NFTs. There are other ones that sell them as well, but it's one of those places where you can go on and buy these things. And you're just seeing crazy things being bought on and speculated on. Okay. And speculation is the right word because it's like people sort of they're buying them because they might go up in value like stocks. So there's right. a lot of people out there like this is a fast investment. I'm going to invest $1,000. I think I can resell this for $5,000. That sounds like an amazing way mm -hmm. to make money if I could do that in one hour. Right, right, and right. And so I'm going to try that out. So they're just trying it. They're so they're buying all sorts of intellectual property, and they're hoping that one of those pieces of property they could maybe resell, it'll, recoup their it'll costs. Go and but I don't think that's going to last. We need to figure out what happens when this NFT technology goes into tool stage, like what it's really useful for. Okay. And when it goes to an environment stage, and if it gets to an environment stage. Yeah. And my thought actually, to contradict myself, is that Yes, they will become actually really important because okay. if you if you think about how we buy houses or cars, like I was saying, it's right now it's a really laborious, slow process involving papers and contracts and somehow a notary is involved still. And people are like, this is somehow <laughs> from the Middle Ages or at least the 80s. And <laughs> NFTs would create a digital record that allows you to prove ownership of maybe even a physical good, not just a JPEG or not just a Kings of Leon album, but maybe it could be a way, a digital way forward, the so, iTunes, the the Apple simple, secure way of owning things in the future. So it could be that an NFT, it might be a token for a house or a yeah, car. Yeah. And it would be a way that you could sell me not just this podcast, but your Camry. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think it's hard to imagine really where this could go. But I want to go back to the example that you brought up about artists selling originals of their work and like ask, why does that even matter? This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting. A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne, Dog the Bounty Hunter, Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Do originals matter? Chris, I think this is absolutely the big question. There's two sides to this that I'm trying to tease out in my mind. There's NFTs that are representing art that right. you can right-click, copy, paste. Right, right, right. And so someone can own the original, but other people can replicate it. The value of that to me is really vague and unclear. Right. The value of your home and that being part of an NFT, it's a 
digital deed to a physical object that can't right. be replicated. Right. right, right, right. That I can see the real value of. The Kings of Leon album is a digital thing that can be replicated infinitely. Does the original matter in a replicable world? Right. We do have a fork here, right? We seem to have two categories coming. One is NFTs that would relate to digital things. And this even relates to our metaverse idea yeah. on our other episode of yes, the metaverse, absolutely. where what if we in the future live in a digital world and you could buy digital clothing and you maybe want to own that digital clothing, you know, so, and yeah, so yeah, this, yeah. there's sort of all this world. And then there's this other thing of what if NFTs become the digital standard for physical objects, like the house you're saying. Right. So I love the Art Institute in Chicago, and that's why I keep on bringing yes. up these things. I've been a member for like 15 years. I'm like a dork, right? <laughs> I think you and I have gone together maybe before. We have, yeah. And we I went like, to a Van Gogh exhibit. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Nice. I love like touring people around there. And, and we saw the originals of the Van Gogh. We saw his Van Gogh's bedrooms. bedroom paintings. That's right. Right. Originals, not right. pictures. 100%. And the Art Institute has one of them. They yeah. have one of the original ones, but that... That year, they had gotten the other two. I assume yeah. they're in Europe. Yeah, I think so. One's in Amsterdam. And so they had all three of them in one place. That's like a big deal, right? There was huge crowds. Yeah. Tickets were long for this thing because everyone wanted to see the original. Yeah. And we'll pay lots of money to see the original, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the question is, why do they Why do that? Because I could instantly search online and even get a very high resolution of right. all three of those right. bedrooms. Right. Is it the experience of seeing it? I could actually see almost easier on a screen because I could probably like look at it closely. We had to fight our way to the front to see they're actually fairly small. They're like a foot tall or something, you know? So it's not just seeing it, right? Right. What else is it? What's the value? That's a great question. As we were prepping for this episode, I was reminded of an article by Walter Benjamin, who is a philosopher, actually. But he wrote a 1935 essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Oh, fascinating. So it's this idea. I love technology articles from the 30s. <laughs> I know. It's fantastic. He talks about the way that each piece of art has a history. So there is a process of producing a piece of art that the artist undertakes. There's a there's a time element, <laughs> you know, the artist might have the idea, but then they start to collect the materials necessary for them to actually create a piece of art. In a digital world, you have artists who have their MacBook Pro or whatever, and they have their Adobe Suite. Right. They have all of these tools that they then draw together they maybe take a photo and maybe add another photo and they create this thing. This woman who traveled to Hawaii and took that photo and then perhaps color corrected it and did all these things in order to create that image. There's a history to that image. There's a context. Right. In a digital space, that history is much more flat and harder to see. Oh, I see. So going to your question of what's the value of the original, the value of the original is in the creation of it. And in the history that it, it, it represents. Yeah. It's not just the final product for Van Gogh. It's every brush stroke. It's right. the paint that he mixed. Right. It's the canvas that he bought that he stretched and created. It's even the story, like those bedrooms. And I remember some of this story. I don't know if you do. He was really struggled with mental illness. Yeah. And he painted those pictures of the bedrooms not in his bedroom. But when he was at a mental hospital, uh -huh. do you remember this? When he like was yeah. like not okay, yeah. he was committed to this hospital. He eventually, sadly, commits suicide. But he's painting the memories of these bedrooms, and they're sort of distorted looking, mm -hmm. sort of like have some greens and mm -hmm. some weirdness things. And he's painting these like remembering home from a not home. Yeah. And so you can almost feel the sadness. That's part of the story of the original. Yeah. Walter Benjamin describes all of this as the aura of the original. So you're saying that creates the value, the story, the, the aura. Yes. <laughs> the aura creates the value. And what happens in the age of mechanical reproduction is that the aura is lost. The reproductions yeah, right. no longer have that history. They, they have their own history right, of right. being mechanically reproduced, right, right, right. but they don't have the history of the artist putting their work into it. This is why if I go to Target and buy a candle that was made on an assembly line. It's five bucks. It, right. No one cares. But if I go to a little craft shop where someone yeah. handmade a candle like from wax and stuff and they did it themselves, it's a $30 candle. Yeah. 
it sounds like he was writing at a time when mechanization, Model Ts, these things are like all happening and yes. everything used to previously be handcrafted, but now we can make hundreds of reproducible items. Nowadays, of course, we love the stuff that comes handcrafted because it's so unusual. Right. In the in the age of digital reproduction, we've suddenly reversed into valuing, you know, single source origin coffee and the story <laughs> behind it, right? Yes, right, right, and, right. And handcrafted tables with live edge oak. You know, we want all of these. We want the aura. We want the history of the piece, not just the digital reproduction. And then I have another layer on the digital original idea. And this one has to do with Jason Derulo. <laughs> do you know who that is? The, the, I, you know, I hear the name and I never have looked up he's like this R, person. like big, you know, R&B artist. But I think this is from like 10 years ago. He had a song that was called What You Say. And uh, the first time, and it was really big. It was like his first breakout song. Can that you was, sing a little bit? Like, mm, what you say? Ooh, that you only meant. <laughs> <laughs> thank okay. you, thank you. <laughs> that that up to the value of this podcast episode. You can, um, which you can purchase for fifty cents somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe I could even be on pitch. But but the part I just sang is what made me mad, mad when I first heard whoa, this song whoa. because the part I just sang is actually wasn't Jason Derulo. It was Imogene Heap. Ooh. So do you know who Imogene Heap is? I, I do know she, that She was a name British, well, yes. British artist that was, has won Grammys. But she's sort of niche, you know, and she's sort of like eclectic, artistic, and I loved her, you know. And she had a song called Hide and Seek that was really popular. People probably know out there. A lot of people had heard it, but it wasn't like mega popular, right? It wasn't like world pop popular. She right. was just a niche artist. Jason Derulo sampled Imogene Heap's What You Say put it into his R&B song and created a multi-millions hit and made a ton of money off that thing. And it was a sample, huh. a copy, kind of thing you can do in digital media, which is where he just took her digital recording, grabbed it, and this has done a lot of R&B and rap, but like put it into his song and then made it way more popular. Did he I, credit her? No. Oh. No credit. I was mad. A lot of people were mad. But you can go into this and the history of it. Eventually online on Twitter, she said, yes, I actually had given permission oh, behind the scenes. In fact, yeah. she had a thing where she created albums with people sending in digital sounds and she would put them together in an album. The reason I bring all this up is she would sample other people. Jason Derulo sampled her. And only in this world of digital remix, the original starts melding into new things. It's hard to determine what the original even is. Yeah. Right. Imogene's Heap song has value and Jason Derulo's song has value, even though it's a copy of the other thing. Right. And the original starts to not totally matter as much. And a scholar named Jamie O'Neill winds up saying, the medium is the remix. Riffing off of Marshall McLuhan and saying that in digital media, we remix things. The original and the copy aren't separate, but they can be we combined to create right. new things. It makes me realize that the value of the NFT as a piece of art, it will be in the ability of the artist to tell a story about that piece of art. You will only be able to sell it in as much as you're able to sell the story and the story is able to be carried along by the NFT. For instance, the story of this podcast is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> And here's the thing I will add on to that. This makes so much sense. The reason why the story is valuable is because people like stories. And the reason why anything is valuable is because people say it is valuable. This is the core of how economics work. This is the core of how value works. When people agree that something is valuable, it's valuable. You're saying if you and I just both believe and agree that something's valuable, then it's valuable? Well, if you and I both agree that this plastic water bottle I'm holding, <laughs> as I grab for a plastic water bottle, is valuable, if we both agree, yes, two of us can make something valuable because you can say, I think that's valuable. And I say, I think this is valuable. And I'm going to like, well, it's a dollar, but I'll sell it to you for $2 because you think it's valuable and you might be willing to pay $2 for it, right? <laughs> so two people can actually make something valuable if there's a transaction. A group of people can make something valuable, a large group of people, just because they all agree. This sounds like a collective delusion. <laughs> <laughs> this is what some people say NFTs are. But really, NFTs are working off the same principle that makes art valuable. And this is the same thing that makes money valuable. It's what makes gold valuable. Gold. No, money is valuable because it's valuable, Chris. <laughs> because you can trade it for things, right? 
And we know that we can trade it for things now. We know we can trade it for things in the future. When people agree mm. something is valuable, it's valuable. It feels really flimsy, but when you go to Econ 101 class in college, <laughs> this is what they start teaching you, and you realize this is right. right. The U.S. dollar is a valuable thing because everyone agrees it's valuable. If everyone suddenly stopped agreeing it was valuable, it would lose its value. And this does happen in small countries, right? There's a reason why Venezuela's currency blows up. And it's because everyone in the country starts going, oh, no, we don't think this is valuable. If somehow Mm -hmm. we could all mind meld back to this is valuable again, it becomes valuable. Mm. Crazy. This is why NFTs are valuable. And that's also why originals are valuable or things that have stories are valuable. I think the question for me is, if NFTs do stick around, if they're not a fad, if they become an environment, how do they affect the world? Yeah. I think one of the things is that they could create huge economic disparity. We already see economic disparity, but what you and I say is the sin and grace of humanness sort of imports into technologies. Right. This is easy to imagine with NFTs. So say everything becomes tokenized, token being this this digital ownership certificate. The first thing it does is it expands the group of people that can buy something for anything. So if you imagine like an art auction, I'm going to go imagine they're at the Art Institute again, or like in a movie and there's like a British guy in front and he's like, he's like, and this piece is spectacular. It's like, you know, and I don't know. And like there's seven old ladies wearing thousand uh, dollar sweaters and they're each holding like a little paddle with a number on it. And right. Like, it looks like a fan. <laughs> and they, right, and they hold it up themselves. and like, ooh, I, for, for, you know, and he's yeah, like, 14. Do, yeah, yeah. 14. Do I hear, do I hear $50,000? Exactly. Yeah. You imagine these rich people in a room bidding on a thing. And uh, you remember the, you remember Banksy? I watched a Banksy one? auction on TikTok recently. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was the auction of the one that had shredded. Right. And the auctioneer was like, I, I fear to drop this gavel again. <laughs> so this was, this was what I was thinking about. It was an auction. And at the end of the auction, when the person won it, the piece of art on the wall suddenly started moving and everyone turned around and itself shredded itself yeah. right into pieces. It went through a paper shredder. It secretly installed this, this shredder into the art. Fantastic. And it was like, it was, and it was sort of like this commentary on like you rich people in here like bidding <laughs> on this. And then of course, the irony of it is it that- sold it sold for like it, four it, or six times like as wet, much. Way even higher in the value. So we imagine these sort of silly rich the, people- The story of the art now. Right. We, we imagine these silly rich people sitting in a room bidding on a thing. But imagine if that pool of people increased, say like it wasn't, the 15 people in a room, but it was like a larger room. You could fit a hundred people in the room. Well, suddenly like you have more people that might put up their paddles, right? And like bid on something. And that makes maybe the price go up. Right. Well, imagine it even bigger. Imagine it to like a stadium, soldier field of people, you know, 50,000 people in a stadium, but there's probably not everyone can put up their paddle for these prices, but there's more people that could. Right. So suddenly there's more people bidding on something. Right. Well, with tokenization, what I'm afraid of is that we get into a place where everything has a global stadium full of people that can hold up little paddles and bid on something. But it's not like that now. I don't know. People go on vacation to like a Central American country and they say it's beautiful and they'll come back and they go like, oh my gosh, everything's so cheap there. (laughs) Right? Because they're an American and the dollar is way more valuable than the currency in this other country. And economies are geographied, right? They have a certain limitation. So someone might only make in our money, you know, $10 a day in a location, but things are are cheaper, you know, bananas a few cents. And so that allows people to hopefully, you know, there are huge inequities even when you convert it. Yeah. But some of the inequity just comes from there's different values. But Americans have a ton more buying power. If we create NFTs for everything in the globe, suddenly there's a ton of rich people in the stadium, Americans, yeah, or Westerners, you know, maybe in these developed countries. And there's way more people that have no buying power and suddenly they can't buy the things that are in their own backyard. Mm. People of means are going to impoverished places and snatching up all the goods, the good goods that are there. Yeah. And I just bought an NFT for this beach in El Salvador or ooh, something, you know? It does sound nice. Wow, you're going to be one of them. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it create an economic potential for severe economic injustice? I could see that. I'm also thinking about your other argument that, you know, when we talk about social media today and how you theoretically can speak to millions of people all at the same time, and you're saying, well, no, actually that doesn't happen in social media. You're actually talking to 
A small subset of people. Okay, that's a good counter. And I wonder, like... So you're saying that I'm describing this huge thing, but in reality, that's not how it... In reality, like, it's still going to be... There's not a million people bidding on everything. Yeah, and... I, but your point is taken. Like, there's still a niche group of people who all find this story of that thing really valuable. So right, they're going right. to compete with one another to drive up the price in a similar example would be like in like the neighborhood I live in Chicago, there's been a lot of story of like young professionals moving into the neighborhood and buying right. houses or apartments. This has really driven up the prices. And there was a lot of Latino families that lived in the neighborhood that have lived there for 40, 50 years. And things were a lot cheaper in that neighborhood originally. But, you know, yeah. this is the idea of gentrification. So right. suddenly you're getting a lot of places that, you know, houses are costing $500,000 or $750,000 or a million dollars in Chicago, which is not that uncommon. And, you know, a family that's working class can't afford these houses, but they've lived here their whole life. And like, how are they going to afford things? The reason why I think about that is because I'm afraid NFTs can create, and this is a little bit technical, but think about it for a second, increase the pace of transactions. And specifically, I think about buying houses. And right now, when you buy a house, when you buy a mortgage, it takes like, uh, it takes all this paperwork and all these lawyers and banks are really slow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then you have to do all these processes and you get, like I was joking about the notary earlier. Yeah. That sort of slows down the pace. Right now, you know, yep. there's been a lot of demand this year for houses. And so people are already saying bids get put out really fast. Yeah. But it's say you had a digital tokenized version of this that can move at lightning speed. Right. And you could buy a house instantly. Well, suddenly a house that is valuable to a few rich people could be bid up. Like it goes on the market and Bid, 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 bid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly you have a million dollar house because of the pace of transactions. Sure. We actually see this now with digital stock market stuff. Stock markets didn't used to work like this. But now that we have computers on the stock market, we see these prices that go up rapidly because computers can bid digitally. And the pace of transactions, we don't mm-hmm. have traders on the floor now anymore yelling and trying to manually move <laughs> around pieces of paper like we used to see with Peter Jennings on the evening news. At least that's what I saw when I was a kid. Like we have computer- so many 90s references. We have, so the pace of transactions, if everything is owned by an NFT, do you see how could this mm-hmm. could lead to crazy inequities? I wonder, you know, okay, so we're living in this space now where there is an original NFT being sold, but then in a, for digital goods, they can be replicated infinitely is this the best of both worlds where someone can have the original and have the value of the original and everyone else can have a digital replica and it's for all intents and purposes the same thing wow interesting it's sort of a good argument (laughs) i hate saying that to you (laughs) i know and i love hearing it (laughs) i mean about art or things that makes me think yes right you know obviously about a home me having a picture of the home is not the same thing as me you know living in the home yeah and i do think going back to the digital versus physical goods there's a big difference between tokenizing a digital good and tokenizing a physical good the economics of those two things feel so fundamentally different. For instance, there's this group called Manifold. You know, I used to, I, I've worked for marketing agencies. It's like an agency for NFTs. Okay. And they're sort of tech nerds that create these complex NFTs. So we have barely scratched the surface. We really right? have. But they are doing these things. The founder of it is called, his name is Richard Chan. And he was like, I think NFTs are a new medium. We love that medium language. He said, I see a lot of artists that know how to create art, but don't know how to do the tech side of it. And he started creating these very complex NFTs that have code in them, essentially. You can link one NFT NFT to maybe another NFT. Yeah, through smart contracts. Yeah, yeah, through smart contracts. And it could change or it could do sort of complex things. The reason why I bring this up is that this is the kind of stuff that maybe would happen in the digital world, not the physical world stuff. But could really create a level of complexity. But back to my point, that could actually create another gulf between <laughs> the know-hows, the technical know-hows will be maybe able to create complex technical instruments around people that are just like sort of simple folk, quote unquote, that don't know what's going on. And we're over here speculating, almost like the way the banks Mm -hmm. speculated on stuff Mm -hmm. for the mortgage crisis of 2008. It's interesting because this Manifold NFT agency, they're doing digitally what Banksy did in an analog way. If you think about it, Banksy basically stipulated, if this piece of art sells, then shred the piece of art. That's an algorithm. That's a contract, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if this happens, (laughs) then do that. What Manifold is doing is a digital version of that. If, you know, the piece of art reaches, you know, sells to the third person, then change the piece of art in this way. 
or if this other linked contract, this other piece of art sells 10 times, then do this to that piece of art. Already in sort of the analog world with Banksy, he's anticipating the potentials for what the NFT could do. Fascinating. I think it's really hard to predict all the long-term effects of what NFTs would do, especially on this digital side. Like these contracts, even that owner of that company yeah. and banks here just say it's just the beginning of what they're figuring out. But we've talked a long time about the effects. I'm sitting here thinking still, how does a Christian think about ownership? Just today, as we were preparing to record this incredibly valuable NFT podcast, which you can purchase for 50 cents at a <laughs> later time. I learned that the Santa Casa da Misericordia de Lisboa in Portugal, which is a 500-year-old Catholic charitable organization. Oh, wow. Okay. Has a massive collection of Catholic art, which some call relics. The collection is called a reliquary, if you will. Okay, right. But apparently they have a large physical collection of relics from St. Francis Xavier. Oh, okay. And they are releasing these as non-fungible tokens. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, Are you kidding? Yeah. A a, a relic has to do with a physical item that is related to someone who has been sainted by the Catholic Church. So it's these physical (laughs) items that are somehow attached. They have a story that is connected to a saint of the church. So they have both relics. They also have paintings, and they are releasing the first set of NFTs. They're going to mint one million NFTs of this one relic, but they're only going to release 10,000 of them, which will be available for purchase at 100 euros. But then for these paintings, the paintings they're releasing, they only are releasing 20 minted NFTs that they will sell for an undisclosed price. So here we have these religious items. What do we think of, say, a cross from a church being sold as an NFT? Could a church perhaps raise funds by selling the cross to people in the congregation? This is not what I was thinking about when I was thinking about a Christian view of ownership <laughs> and NFTs. This is the, uh, I, I, I think that's... I don't like that at all. I mean, that just feels like it's profiting off of these values of a church, creating an auction for art in the church uh, where these things were maybe designed for pointing us towards God and they're auctioning off. Ooh, I don't know. I like that. I was thinking much more. Take me there, Chris. I was thinking more like, just what does the Bible say about, I mean, when NFTs are all about ownership and you can't own God. But I mean, I was thinking much more about what does the Bible say about ownership in general, right? Okay. Like, does scripture point us to how we, how do we own creation, you know? And mm. isn't God the owner of creation? Doesn't God own the cattle on a thousand hills in Psalms? You know, the parable of the talents when Jesus tells this or the parable of the good steward yeah. is Jesus pointing us towards the stewardship is the word, like how we steward things as opposed to own things because God is the creator. We are not. Yeah. But Adam, if we go to a doctrine of creation, is given the command to till and care for the earth, but the earth is not theirs, right? Right. And so the Christian doctrine of creation, I think, points us to a place where ownership is not the final way we talk about the world. Oh, and, and, and Jubilee, you know, the year of Jubilee in Israel is this sort of check <laughs> on ownership. You know this, right? When people in Israel are buying and selling right. property, God says every 50 years, all the property is supposed to turn back to the original owner, yeah. but sort of the way God set it up in these boundaries. Yeah. And I would argue they're stewardship boundaries because there's supposed to be a check on, you can't profit or amass all this wealth like Mm -hmm. this is God's at the end of the day. Isn't this a check on how we think about ownership? What about if it's intellectual property? I mean, I created it myself, you know? (laughs) Or, you know, if you think about George Lucas creating Star Wars, I mean, I think it's just incredible that you can take an idea, you can take a story and turn it into a billion dollar empire, right? Like that just blows my mind. But isn't George Lucas, the owner of Star Wars, or wasn't he at one time? Maybe it's Disney now, but yeah, right, right, right. But like, we're talking intellectual property now. We're talking about something that an artist created. 
Yeah, but all yeah, yeah. He created it uh, ex nihilo, right? He created it out of nothing. <laughs> no, he made something. And there's a, he, a distinction in the Hebrew between make and create in Genesis one, right? And this is a little stretched because it's not consistent, really. <laughs> but maybe we have a theological idea of like God creates things out of nothing, where humans can, as little creators, as right. images of God, can create things. But we create things out of things that are already made. We create derivatives. We right. make something of something we God already gave us because God. Created. Yes. And and so yeah, I could see a George Lucas being creative, but he had all these things going for him, you know? <laughs> so so maybe we need to give to God that which is God's. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Whose image is on it? Right? Caesar. Yeah, Jesus is really wise on that one, right? I think it's also a little bit sarcastic. <laughs> Gets read very simply as give to the government what it's due. But the point is, of course, that God owns what Caesar owns as well. We all know in the crowd, as I'm holding it, that's going, give to God what it's God's and Caesar's what it's Caesar's. And they're asking about a temple tax versus the state tax. Mm. And he actually says, yes, give to Caesar what it's Caesar's and God's what it's God's, which is living at peace. But he's also the whole crowd knows, well, obviously God owns everything that Caesar owns. And so it's a tongue-in-cheek answer. And I think that goes back to that ownership thing of, no, God owns everything. So what I wonder is, with non-fungible tokens, does this just ratchet up the idea of ownership? American Christians do not like this. I I see you staring at me. Am I an American Christian? (laughs) Maybe. Because it sounds really communist, right? Like, private ownership is like a core bedrock idea of market economies. Sure. But we have to deal with all these things in the text. And then we have, like, acts. And we talk about the people owning things together. And that often gets explained away as well. But, Chris... What about the Ten Commandments? Do you remember, I think it's commandment number six, thou shalt not steal. Maybe Ah. it's not number six. Maybe it's number eight. Anyways, point is. (laughs) We're terrible Christians. What number is what? Stealing presumes ownership. It does. Even the Jubilee, it presumes ownership of some sort. Yeah, I think it's correct. But I think I would like to say it presumes stewardship. And so it does make sense that someone is responsible for something. Neither Caesar nor us are the emperors or the originating owners. So- I say that all to say, don't you think that NFTs, when everything's a nail with technology, we, wait, how does that phrase? (laughs) (laughs) When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have NFTs, doesn't it just over-spiritually cancerize us into trying to own everything? Everything looks like something to be owned, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is the NFT that is this episode of the podcast is one that we are asking someone to steward for 50 cents, but not own for 50 cents. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, actually I am because I was going to make the distinction earlier that owning the NFT doesn't give you the copyright. (laughs) Which is actually, we didn't bring that up, but that's true for most all these things. The copyright is, and it's complicated, is still remaining with, the artist is still the creator and the owner owns that. Yeah, in the same way that you could purchase a book, you can't quote from the book as though it's your own. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Are you swayed by, I guess that's my only theological thing. We think a lot about how do these technologies create these invisible environments that affect our virtue and affect our character. I do appreciate your point that to anyone armed with an NFT, everything looks like something to be owned. And I think that takes us back to some of the things we talked about in our metaverse conversation, where every space in the metaverse becomes a space for marketing. It becomes a space for a corporate entity to take control. And that's not the way that I think God has us living in the world. And yes, for us to think about everything as something we can own moves us away from the mindset that we are stewards of something God has given us. And we no longer see the world as a gift, but as something to be possessed. And so when you gifted me this NFT of a podcast episode, but I was purchasing it, You're getting really confused right now. It translated us into a transactional way of being rather than a gift way of being. I mean, it's almost like if there was NFTs for humans, who would own them? God. (laughs) But no, like you start thinking that out, the analogy sort of works. And I actually got this from your notes that I was (laughs) But you wrote down image of God in your notes. Yeah. Here. 
Right. Why? Because when we're thinking about the original and we're thinking about the replicas or the reproductions, we are bearers of the image of God, but God is the original. And we somehow steward that image, but we are also reproductions of that image in some way. Yeah. It's almost like NFT works for that, except it almost doesn't. <laughs> Maybe this is a ridiculous metaphor, but yeah, like because we're both unique and we're both an image. And so like everyone's unique, like all NFTs are non-fungible. We're non-fungible. Oh, we're non-fungible. <laughs> we're two fun guys, but we're non-fungible. <laughs> oh, good. You are unique, but also like you're made with a purpose and with a value. Mm. And that's because God, like because of the the creator God, you know? And, yeah. and that's how I read Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Whose image are you? God's. Therefore, give yourself to God. Okay, Adam, it's time for Vice or Virtue. According to the Hollywood Reporter, which is our favorite news <laughs> for this podcast, <laughs> there is a valuable and amazing asset coming to become an NFT next. I want to know if you're going to bid on it as a Vice or Virtue. It's... Hello Kitty. <laughs> oh man. Hello Kitty is becoming an NFT. I mean, you talked about it earlier. You know, the cute I little did. Japanese cartoon cat. Okay. First of all, Chris, Hello Kitty is not a cat. <laughs> <laughs> According to an anthropologist at the University of Hawaii, she is a cartoon character. She is a girl. She is a friend, but she's not a cat. Gosh. She's never depicted on all fours. She walks and sits like a two-legged creature. She does, in fact, have a pet cat of her own, and it's called Charmy Kitty. Charmy Kitty. So Hello Kitty has a pet cat. Yeah, Hello Kitty has a kitty. And I'm supposed to tell you whether I think Hello Kitty is a vice or virtue. My sister loved Hello Kitty when she was a kid, and I love my sister. So I will say that Hello Kitty is a virtue. That's that's a theological reasoning you get on this podcast. <laughs> well, as you remember, I did high school in Japan. So Hello Kitty was right. literally just part of the environment. Like you couldn't walk down the street. Is that real? Yeah. Is that true? Oh, yeah. All over the place. Wow. Well, the problem is they weren't the Hello Kitties, like the, the cutesy, like with a bow. I mean, you would see that around. Yeah. But also there was just sort of little, little cat icons. And then there's the old traditional cat icon with the paw. Again, not goes, a cat. The, well, these are cats, though, I think, with the paw that goes up facing you. And sometimes they're in, they're, they're yeah, like yeah, a yeah. little plastic yes. statue where the paw actually oh, waves are, back and forth. Like, and some people in Japan have them like at a front door for good luck or businesses to, and oh, it's like, yeah. so they always felt very pleasant to me, very welcoming, but they were usually plastic and pink. They sound very hospitable. You know, I'm going to take the, the hospitality cue as a reason for me to say hospitality is good, therefore it's a virtue as well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitive. Hello Kitty is a virtue. We should tell people that they should follow us on Twitter at Device Virtue or, or on, on Instagram. Instagram. And because the reason is if they don't want to buy a Hello Kitty NFT, they should definitely buy the NFT to this podcasts absolutely <laughs> I wonder and we'll if, announce it there. will we get an actual buyer who knows <laughs> <laughs> i don't know uh we'll link to it on deviceandvirtue.com see you adam see you chris This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.